My name is Mary. I'm an alcoholic and addict from Brooklyn, New York. Um, and I do have a lot of time. I've got 24 hours. I got today. That's all I got. I can lay claim to. But I've been hanging around the rooms for a, quite a while now. And I've met some amazing people um, who've helped me stay sober through God knows what else. Craziness. Through finding out who I was and how I worked and how I acted and reacted. But um, long before that ever happened, I, uh, I had a habit of, when I was a kid, it started with like so many people. My brothers and I would be very helpful when my parents had parties and we'd clear the table. And we'd always clear the table and whatever glasses we got, pour them into one and drink it. So at, at five, six, seven years old, we were catching alcohol off the table, you know, and I don't remember how sick I got from that, but I know I was sick often as a kid, especially after my parents' parties. I found it necessary at that age to start numbing myself and hiding. Um, I would hide myself in extraordinary places in order not to be seen or found or heard. My doctors yell at me today because they say that my pulse ox, my blood, it, you know, my breathing is low. And I tell them it's because that's how I survived. You know, if you're in a closet and you're hiding, you don't want to take a deep breath. And as I got older and I started using, I still did that. I'd get, I'd, 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 get high and I'd get freaked out and I'd go hide in the closet or behind a couch. Um, locking myself in my room wasn't an option. It wasn't safe. So there was no time in my life where drinking and drugging was about, you know, they called it partying, but that's bull. It was never partying for, for me or for a number of people I know. The party went out as soon as we didn't have something. Whatever it was we were using, and a lot of it in those days, you know, we, we smoked a hell of a lot of pot and, you know, we did a lot of drugs and I, I became my own doctor. But before I did that, I did whatever my older brothers and sisters did times 10. I tell a story about... Um, going out drinking for the first time with my older sister and her best friend and we all grabbed bottles of Boone's Farm and I remember only that I took their bottles and finished them and that's the end of the night that I remember um, they told me that I tried to climb on a couple of mailboxes and fell between them and got stuck because I thought it was the funniest thing and there I am stuck between the mailboxes and they're trying to drag me out to drag me home. I don't remember that at all. Um, it was probably the second earliest blackout that I remember. The first blackout I remember, I ended up at my brother, my brother's 21st birthday party. He lived around the block with his, with his wife and uh, he was having an all out party and decided that it was a good idea to invite his younger sisters. 
that meant that I walked in and somebody passed me a dube and also passed me a, a glass, a full glass of vodka. I found out later that's what it was. But I liked it because it meant I didn't feel anymore. So everything that I did when I was younger was all about not feeling. And it meant doing everything legal or illegal to make sure that didn't happen. I know that when I felt, I hurt. When I felt, other people were able to hurt me. And when I've looked at that now, I've seen that, yes, I was the one who let them hurt me. But a lot of times I was not able or capable of stopping it. You know, when you're a little kid, you can't stop somebody from beating the crud out of you. But you can go off and sneak a little alcohol and and everything got better, you know? It doesn't take much when you're little. And I had kind of forgotten about those days until my brother reminded me how he thought they were cherished memories of our childhood. And I told him I wouldn't call them cherished, you know? Um, but, uh, you know, as I got older, I, I still found that when I was in pain, alcohol or drugs was my solution. I, you know, I went through high school the same way. People were wanting to pick and poke and prod, and I wanted to hide and be anonymous. People wanted to insult me and uh, challenge my sexuality. So I became even more adamantly straight. You know, if you told me you thought I was gay, I was going to punch you out. That was because it was safe. So all of this was accompanied by as much drugs and as much alcohol as I could get my hands on and shove into my body. Um, I really found a safe place in numbness and in not feeling in blackouts. Um, you know, I was 19, I was in college and there was a bar in the college and there was <laughs> a bad place to put a bar in the same place where you could smoke all you wanted. I took an 8 a.m. class three days a week my last semester. I don't remember going beyond that class. People told me I got downstairs, I waited for the store, liquor store to open. You know, and I stayed in the lounge the rest of the day. For some reason, I failed all my classes, except the eight o'clock one, which I understand was art appreciation. And I don't remember a minute of it because I was anxiously waiting my chance to go downstairs. So, you know, um, when I was 18, I went to it, um, a kid's camp to help them out. You know, it was one of those places where they need counselors and I'd gotten hired on, hired on to be the um, drama teacher for these kids. Uh, not that any of them wanted to do drama. They all wanted to be swimming in the lake. But I right away found out where people go, what they do when they're drinking, when they're getting high, where do they hide, who goes to what cabin, who goes to where in the woods. And uh, my last couple of days there was real fun. I was in a complete blackout. I was supposed to be taking care of kids in a cabin. It was my, my rotation. 
And I guess they found me passed out in the floor of the cabin with a bottle and, and lit cigarettes. I was smoking in there and sitting and drinking. And the only thing I remember is being woke up by having the couch I was sleeping on dumped over on its side, being goose stepped off to the bus back to Brooklyn and being told I'm probably not going to get my last check. And I got home and I found out that my parents had gone on a cruise and the house was empty except for kids. And I was like, oh, great. I didn't miss the party. Um, that's how much stock I put in what happened. So I got fired from my first job. And then I get to college. And that's how I deal with college. You know, there's Central Park is right there by the school. And for some reason, once I went below 1.5 grade point average, Hunter College didn't want me either. So they summarily threw me out. And uh, I had gotten a tuition uh, reimbursement and I took that and I got on a bus to South Dakota. Got to South Dakota, took my first hostage. Um, my former husband and I got married before my 21st birthday after I'd known him for three months. And uh, it was a great marriage in a lot of ways, but he was my, he was a hostage. My attitude, my alcoholism, my anger, my frustrations all made it really hard on him and my daughter. And I'm only, it's only a good thing that I have a good relationship with both of them today. My daughter's really great, but you know, she's, she just turned 41 today and, uh, we have our problems, but she's great. Uh, my former husband is a freaking angel. I, you know, I, I once joked with him that, you know, it's too bad he didn't want to have a sex change, but, you know, um, I, I realized who I was in sobriety. Um, I was maybe two years in when I started to realize that there were problems in how I was relating and that, you know, it turns out I realized I was gay and that was a trip because it really screwed up a good marriage. Um, so we ended up uh, splitting up using the steps to do it safely and sanely. Um, we did it gently and we did it lovingly because I had the steps in my life and he knew what they were and we worked around it and we did it together. And there was some frustrating times the first couple of years, but we got it together. And now when I see him, I'm really happy to see him. And he's still happy to see me. I think he just likes Donnie. So he always waves goodbye to her when it, at the end of a meeting, comes in, says goodbye to me, waves goodbye to her, whether she can see it or not. So I think he just likes Donnie. But, you know, I'm very lucky because a lot of people tell horror stories of what happens in their lives. And because I was sober at the time, because I had a ground, I was grounded, I was able to step through that door and do what I had to do and take care of myself and my family. Um, my daughter is handing out cat food as we speak. Um, sorry about that. Um, so 
anyway, I, I will go back to where I was when I was continuing to hide. I was working and I was with, you know, I was married and things were good and things were comfortable and depending on who was talking to me, uncomfortable. But I brought myself into that relationship and I brought myself into my relationship with my daughter that caused problems because we were all still hanging out with a drunk and that was me. So, you know, we didn't, I mean, everything didn't mesh like beautifully because I still had issues because I thought that if things didn't go right, it was okay to dump a coffee table over in the middle of the dining room and then walk away and leave it for him to clean up. Um, so I started going to meetings online. Um, a, lot of, a lot of people don't know that AOL was one of the first places that had AA meetings years ago, a long time ago. And I was going to meetings online. I was, didn't think I had an alcohol problem because I had completely substituted you know, uh, my alcohol for uh, pharmaceuticals at that point. You know, I was so scared of alcohol, I wouldn't even let it in my home. Um, I made sure that, uh, you know, if, if he got gifts of bottles um, because of his job, I asked him to leave them in the car until my mother took them down to Florida with her. And I realized when I got sober, it was because I was terrified of the idea of having alcohol in the house. I used my daughter for an excuse as well, because I would, I would say things like, it's not good for a teenager to have all this out liquor in the house, it's bad. Meanwhile, if I was a teenager, I would have drank it dry. So I hid in any way I could until I couldn't hide anymore. And I started writing in a journal how I should just be drinking anyway. And um, trying to watch the time, I don't know what time I started. I started drinking anyway, and finally, I just, that was it. I went from dreaming about alcohol and still taking my pills to drinking alcohol and realizing later that I still took alcohol with those pill bottles with the little orange labels. I couldn't figure out why I had no capacity. I thought it was because I'd been cured of alcoholism. I told the kids I almost became an alcoholic with the absolute overbearing pride as I was t talking to the teenagers. And I would say to them, you know, you can talk to me about anything. I almost became an alcoholic. And thinking that I knew, and what I knew was I didn't drink for a long while because I just took pharmaceuticals by the handful. I remember asking my ex-husband once if he was surprised you know, that I was in AA. And he said to me, I'm not surprised. He said, I am surprised. I always thought you'd end up in NA. And I was dumbfounded and I was insulted. And I was like, what are you talking about? And of course he'd noticed the amount of, of other substances I was using. And he was right. I had a discussion with my mother and she said, it's good that you're making changes. Just don't believe you're an alcoholic. And I said, no, mom, I'm an alcoholic and a drug addict. And she was 
it, she was as horrified as I was. And she said, what are you talking about? Where did you get these drugs from? So I, I looked at, you know, the, all the meds I had and I said, well, I, these are Steve's and these are Katie's and I kept them just in case. And these were mine and I got this bottle from you. And she said, are you saying I help? That's it. I'm never giving you any more pills again. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's the idea. She thought she was like, I'm cutting you off. And I wanted her to cut me off because she didn't know. I mean, she's an older generation. She's passed on now. And she, her generation did not realize that when you have a turned ankle and you show up upstate, it's not really necessary to get a full prescription prescription of Percocet and send me home with it. I was happy. I was like, oh, no, ma, really, I shouldn't take that home. And I did. So I always had something handy in the house. But it wasn't enough in the end. That's how I know I don't have any problem understanding that I am an alcoholic because in the end, the, the pills were not enough. I needed alcohol. And I began to fantasize about it. And I began to go to church and be one of those people who had to be, you know, running up to communion to drink the wine. And then I was going to church three days a week. And eventually I was going to church five days a week. And I was always willing to help out at the end of mass. It's like what Chinese water torture, you know? Little sips, little sips, write in the journal. Go back to church, have another few sips, write in the journal. So eventually one day I grabbed a, a beer from a friend of mine and I drank about half his beer and put it down. And everybody looked at me and they were like, what are you doing? And I said, I don't know, we're having tacos. And, you know, that was it. I had gave him back his beer. Everybody was shocked and I moved on with my day. But then, then the craving kicked in really quickly. It just took that one half a beer and suddenly all I could think of was wanting to drink again. And I went to the liquor store and I told my friend Barbara, um, I called her up after I bought the bottle home and hid it in my house. I said, you know, I want to know how you did it. She said, did what? I said, you went to rehab. How did you stay sober after that? She knew me as a non-drinker. Her next question was, why are you asking me this? And I told her, very, very subdued and very broken. I said, I have, I don't know why I have a bottle of rum hidden in my bedroom. And she come to my house and talked to me. She said, you know, you've let, uh, you let the genie out of the bottle and you can't ever force it back in. And she was right. And uh, she came into the house, she took the bottle and she talked to me and she left. She had five years of sobriety at the time and she caught hell from her sponsor because her sponsor said, you never go on a 12-step call without a second person. She's saying, but, but it wasn't a 12-step step call, it was a Mary. And her sponsor was having none of it. Excuse me. She's like, no, that's not, that's a 12-step call. You left her house with a bottle, of, a bottle of booze. So I learned that lesson from seeing Barbara get chewed out. And, uh, you know, Barbara and I hung together. We stayed close until she passed away before I came up to Albany, where I am now. 
we used to go on speaking commitments together because we had stories to tell where I would talk about, you know, talking to her while she would stand in my driveway. She wouldn't come up on my porch because she was afraid I'd smell the alcohol. And going to her anniversary meetings where I listened and I got mad because I don't know why these people are making unnerving me. So, you know, we had sort of an intertwined story that we would share together in meetings. And she gave me my first big book that I hid in the bottom of my class. I said, I don't know where it is. She said, well, let me know when you find it, where it was. I said, I don't know how it got on, on a shelf below my, below my pants and below all my extra shoes. And it ended up on the bottom floor, the bottom shelf. And I don't know how it got there. Obviously, I did the burying. So I found it a few months later and I used it. Um, and I actually still have it. I have this big book that fell apart and had to be taped back together. But um, so Barbara had a lot of influences on me. I used to go to meetings and look at her when I was still spinning. And I'd show up at a meeting and she'd say, so how was your weekend? And I will have gotten drunk. And I would just look at her and I would shrug, you know, in to feeling total shame. And she would just sigh. Not say anything critical. Just like, oh, man. And I did, we did this for about six months, Barbara and I. I would come to meetings in her home group and be only have a couple of days so sober each time you know it was the just spin spin cycle mary was a part of it i was also called cleo you know cleopatra um people had a few nicknames for me that i didn't care for but um i stuck with the home group in brooklyn i stuck mostly with my AOL home group. And that took a while because people had to type. Everything was typed. And then you'd go in and you'd have your story and I'd be telling this, typing it all in, which was very laborious. <laughs> people would, do, would then respond. And, you know, when somebody was responding, you'd go make a cup of tea. You could take a nap and go back and find out what they said. But we stayed there and we hung out after the, afterwards to chat. And my friend Joanne was huge in those days. Um, she passed away fairly recently. She was an elder. She had a lot of years of sobriety. Um, my first sponsor lives out in Seattle. We're still in, in touch today. Somewhere in there, she, she went through 15 versions of herself and now she's a nun so I can call her between 7 30 and 8 my time or no 10 30 and 11 my time because she goes to bed at eight o'clock I guess that's when all good nuns go to bed so you know she's there and I talk to her and I talk to her ex-partner and you know it's an in interesting group that we bring to ourselves because she turned it out to be a nun, and her ex-partner was a woman named Jenny, who's now a guy named DJ. 
and they are still close. So we 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 grow our family, I think. You know, I have I have a lot of siblings who I lost one recently, but I think when it comes to having a sober group, we kind of grow our family the way we want to. Mine is very tiny right now. I've sort of become very um, very closed in my own life because I've been home in my house for like four years. And uh, so my group of friends has shrunk. Some have died, some have gotten drunk, some have just turned out to be assholes. <laughs> when, you, when you come right down to it, we didn't get along, I'm sorry to be, I'm sorry. But, you know, what, what's, it depends. I mean, I'm probably the asshole they talk about. So anyway, so my group is kind of small. And the one thing that I have in common with a lot of people I know is that we did the steps. You know, you take a book like, like Living Sober and, you know, it doesn't say working sober. It's not called plotting through it sober. Eventually you do, you know, we kept doing it and start to live this thing. I'm one of those people that if it weren't for the steps, I don't think I would still be around. You know, however you read them and I've heard, seen them written a number of different ways since Zoom started. The basic is the same, you know? It's like some people have a prayer about God, I turned it around to where it's, I can't, we can, let's do it. You know, and it's that simple for me. And it's kind of like that steps one, two, and three. I can't do this alone. I tried. And all it got me was drunk. And I tried doing it in sobriety. And all it got me was freaking miserable. I've tried shutting up. I've tried shutting down. I've tried once and only once. Did I try lying to my sponsor and to somebody else who was really important at that time about something that was happening in my life and it backfired? And let me tell you, having to make a sober amends to your sponsor and to another person that's been helping to guide you really stinks. It was probably worse than any other amends I had to make. But, um, all right, I know I don't, I'm trying to watch the time so somebody can do this if I'm yapping too long. Um, or do this. I don't care what you do. I know what you, you know, just let me know. Um, but I was I was raised, you might say, by people who believed in in doing a program honestly. And, it, you know, different people, different things. And. You know, I just, I didn't matter what you believed, except you had to believe that this program was going to work for you. That's what I learned from the people that I stayed around with. I had to have some belief, suspend my belief that it wasn't going to work. Because for a long while, I was sure it wasn't. And my first sponsor was the one from Seattle. and. She and I had this stupid thing that happened for a long time. I would call her at midnight because that was nine o'clock at night her time. 
and we would do step work together. And she would say, all right, so you're ready. Where's your, where's your 12? Where's your big book? And I'd say, it's in the bedroom. I forgot it. She'd say, go get it. I'd say, I can't go in there. Steve's asleep. And she'd argue until I finally went, fine, I'll go get it. And when I got back to the, to the living room, she'd say, okay, um, so you got your 12 and 12. Where's your, where's your big book? You didn't tell me to get the big book. Because now it's midnight, my house is quiet. Just go get it. No, everyone, fine. With a few other choice words attached. You know, and we would do this through the big book, the 12 and 12, a, a notebook, and a good dictionary. Each time, back and forth, back and forth. And, you know, I'm on calling cards that because they didn't have this thing where phones were free after nine o'clock or midnight. Um, that it didn't work that way. You had to use a calling card after, you know, for, for the day, just the rates changed. And I'd go out and I'd buy calling cards. So I was using calling cards instead of going out and buying alcohol. Um, I just went through this ritual with her until one day she called me, I called her up and she said, okay, so what's going on? I said, I got my big book. I got my 12 and 12. I've got a pad. I've got a pen and I've got a, I've got a dictionary. And she goes, great. You learned. And she stopped, hung up. That was it. That was my lesson for the day. It's like, bitch. I was so pissed. But that's why she said she wanted me to learn that those were the tools of our trade. She helped me for as long as she could. And then her partner jumped in. And at the same time, her partner was the, the sensible person. And she was suffering with a lot of mental stuff, but still able to bring herself into the program. She had a lot of mental issues, but none of them kept her from behaving as a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous, which was way cool. Um, so, you know, Molly and Jenny, even though I, they, we went out to Montana with them, nobody bothered to tell us they split up the day before. It was very uncomfortable. But then I had Jenny listening to a very important fifth step of mine in a Denny's where they still had the smoking section and the non-smoking section with a little pony wall. But we took a corner of there and she heard a fist step because Molly wasn't there. So, you know, I had this, these are the people I had to help me. You know, about 18 months in, um, maybe, not even quite that, maybe 14. Whenever it was, I met somebody in a chat room that saw that my my name said, you know, um, it was Mary AA was my screen name at the time, because that was my last name, all all Geyer. And um, you know, I'd said something in my program about one day at a time I'm doing what I could do. And this person said hello to me. And basically when I they said, How are you doing? I said, I'm all right. How about yourself? And they said, one day at a time, I'm doing good. And right then and there, we had a shift of discussion from 
you know, suddenly whoever this other person was, they became a part of my sober life. And that person has stuck with me through having gotten another sponsor after, after uh, Jenny, a gentleman named Jimmy, um, who had a lot of issues. And when he did, um, she was there, you know, supporting me. We started doing something where it was, you know, a character trait at each year, we'd pick one, focus on it for the year. Like maybe it was, you know, we were talking earlier today about, you know, I have to get my, I've got to get out of the funk. I've got to get organized, disciplined. So I'm working on working that into what I'm going to do. And over the years, it's been courage was one year, um, you know, get stopping gossip another time. Every year there's been something. And that's now like 21 years we've been doing this. And I still haven't run out of character traits. And I probably never will. Um, but God, is it really 21 years? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be 24. It's more than that. Wow. Yeah, so we've been doing this a while. But when my sponsor died in 2009, that person was right there. And I don't know how willingly, but stepped into the role and has been, you know, uh, working with me as a sponsor ever since, fortunately, you know, is somebody that I, I, I absolutely cherish as one of my dearest friends. But let me tell you, she wants to be a brat, crack the whip. She still does it and gets away with it, uh, which is really good because we're still dealing on step work. We're still dealing um, with character traits that come out of balance. When I have issues dealing with my, the world around me that may not understand sobriety, I know where to turn. I turn to a couple of other people I turn, do, sorry, Donnie, to Donnie. And I'm very fortunate that these people are in my life. Don't know where I'd be without them. I've, I'm learning now in the Zoom world to expand my, my very small closed circle and start to open it up a little bit to let other people in. Because I spent, four years ago, I ended up in the hospital with heart failure. And then a year and a half after that, I lost my leg. These were all major things. They all kept me in the house. Um, so my world has been very small. And, you know, certain people have kept me on my toes. Like, you know, we're still doing the work together. And I'm staying on my toes. And it's sometimes it's work. And sometimes it's just an acknowledgement that this is what life is. And, you know, I'm getting to open up to new people, you know, people that I'm hanging out with on Saturday night that are awesome. Some other people, you know, and people like Marsha that I'm just getting to know. And I'm grateful for every single freaking person that's come into my life since Zoom started, because every one of them is enriching my life, even the ones that I think are complete nerds. Because they're make they're reminding me that I don't want to be like them. So that's really handy, you know, because there may be somebody that I'm judging harshly and I'm saying, oh, well, 
you know, so-and-so, she's always negative. She's this, she's that, she's the other thing. And instead of getting really mad, I look at them and I say, I don't want to be that. Last thing I'll say is when I was a brand newcomer, I was in a meeting in my home group, which by the way, was almost all men and they threw chairs at the business meeting. So I was in my home group and I was, we had to move our location. So we're downstairs and we girls trying to, you know, there were me and two other women also about five feet tall. And we're trying to wrestle with these big old heavy trestle tra- uh, tables. And I asked this one man if he could grab the end of the table for me. And he started going, spewing profanity, going on and on and on about, um, you know, I, you know, I was sober when you were still out there puking and, you know, you don't know anything. I've heard your story. You're not really a drunk, but just vile. And I said to him, I need the help. What do you want me to do? And he said, why don't you go out in the parking lot? Take a, take a bunch of those pills you like to take and then slit your wrists. How about that? What made it bad, especially, was that there was a group of nurses coming in to do their observation of the AA group, standing by the door, looking like they wanted to run so bad. But we got them to come in and sit down. And after the meeting was over, I got in my car. And I turned on the ignition and I turned on the headlights. And this man bent down with his back to me to tie his shoe. And I'm looking and I'm so tempted to put my foot on the gas. But, you know, my sponsor taught me better than that. So I stopped and I said, Molly, this one's for you. And I took my foot off the gas. But for just one second, if I wasn't sober, he would have been squished. And, you know, the thing is, he, tur- he continued to be, you know, a first-rate asshole. And then about 10 years later, he got a new sponsor. He did the, the work differently and started, you know, he's, he's now a friend of mine on Facebook. He's always sending me a message about, hey, I love you. I hope you're doing well. And, and I still look at them and go, okay, you sure about that? But, you know, it's okay. He's a happier guy. He's only wishes good things and I'll let him be there so you know sobriety saved my life sobriety saved Tony's life and a day at a time I hope it will continue to save my life I'm I'm planning on going nowhere if I can avoid it um I have my moments but right now I'm in as good a place as I can be as an alcoholic and a drug addict and a whole bunch of other A's that I could own up to, but don't. Well, I own up to them, but I just don't, you know, I don't go to their meetings. I have a list of A's. I think we should just call it A, and that's where we go. So I'm happy to be a member of A, fill in the blanks. Thank you very much for listening.